12 minutes it is after 8pm. You tuned in to Metro FM Talk here on the Mighty Metro. It's our Thought Leader Thursday, which uh, we bring to you every Thursday where we speak to a, a thought leader. Uh, and uh, no better time to speak to Zyanda Stierman than this week. Uh, because uh, certainly what we've seen, I guess, gives us a lot to think about when it comes uh, to the world of uh, policing. And uh, Zyanda Stierman uh, holds an MA in Conflict, Security and Development from Sussex University and an MA in Sustainable International Development from Brandeis University. And, uh, yeah, got her undergraduate training at the University of Stellenbosch. Uh, works in the areas of public policy, security, human rights, labor rights, immigration, gender studies, and uh, with a particular focus on South Africa and the continent of Africa. Zyanda, good evening. This is Metro FM Talk. Oh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, how are you? I'm well, man. Thank you so much for coming through. Congrats on the book. But uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, as I said, you know, the last five days have given us a lot to think about when it comes to policing. Uh, And maybe just some of your thoughts on that. I mean, um, yeah, your book comes out and um, exhibit number one. Uh, (laughs) You see it, I guess, a few weeks later. Yeah, I I mean, I've been, you know, kind of thinking and uh, and writing and researching in this space uh, for a while now, Mm. um, at at the very least, uh, in, in a sort of focused way. Um, since my first master's thesis in 2017, mm. but even before that, in my in my first job uh, uh, in 2013, and sort of looking at at this like big spike in uh, protests that we had uh, in that particular year, and and all of this sort of coming to a head as it is now, um, you know, it's it's been my work has has kind of felt prescient, but in a way just really really sad as well that it, it just feels like all of these factors were out there and at play for a long time. Um, mm. And we didn't need to be here. We really didn't. Um, and I think there's, so, there's such a, I guess, a multi-layered conversation that's needed here. And often a good place for us to start is always the historical context. Um, mm-hmm. We can't sort of extricate policing, the enforcement of law and even conceptions of rule of law uh, from the colonial enterprise in South Africa even before you get to 1948, just the settler colonial enterprise. And uh, I guess, you know, all of the concerns of that settler class uh, really leave a particular type of imprint to how we think about these issues. Uh, Let's start there. Exactly. Um, You know, I couldn't agree more. Uh, In the book, um, you know, I I speak about how uh, South Africa's first sort of formal unitary force, um, you know, comes together in, uh, in 1913. Uh, through legislation called Proclamation 18, that that brings together this very sort of disparate, informal, uh, you know, sort of burger forces um, uh, and other uh, colonial, particularly law enforcement um, bodies, and and brings them all together and collects them and and says, you know, this is now the South African police, and uh, and almost immediately one of their first uh, tasks, uh, you know, is to quell uh, unrest mm. uh, on on mines in the Witwatersrand. And you and a hundred years later at Marikana, you see them stepping in, uh, and you see the police stepping in to do the same type of work again. So this idea that that you know the brutality of our police service, the, the horribly racist and violent nature of it, um, you know, in terms of everyday uh, practice, that it's new or that it's uh, or that it's something that we struggled to let go of from apartheid mm. is actually a very short-term view. It's much, much longer than that. Yeah, yeah. And, and the other parts of the value chain, because I, I, we're going to come back to the policing element, but I'm quite interested mm-hmm. at that early stage, the interface between, you know, policing, the investigations of crimes, 
prosecution of those crimes and, of course, ultimately the incarceration of people uh, at the tail end of that process. How has that developed during that particular moment and what elements of that do we still have now? So the very interesting thing is that, uh, you know, I think a lot of people kind of want to think of of prisons and the institution of prisons in South Africa as having been, uh, you know, about uh, benevolence and and rehabilitation Mm. and uh, sort of social uh, reintegration. But that's absolutely not the focus that they served. Um, A lot of the prisons in the country were, were farm work prisons. And so that meant that that people, uh, for various reasons, ended up, uh, you know, in in incarceration, but then were made to work the entire time that they were there. And that was all about forced labor. Mm. You know, you think of of the Breakwater Prison, uh, which is uh, at at the waterfront now in Cape Town, and how that was essentially a prison sort of labor camp to bring in goods from the sea. um, And as they were coming off the ships, that had nothing to do with community safety and nothing to do with, with justice. And very similarly, our courts, um, you know, very deliberately and, explicit, uh, and explicitly um, enforced both colonial uh, law and order and then later, um, uh, you know, the apartheid regime. And it's, again, horribly racist um, uh, and violent mm. um, laws and regulations. And so all exactly what you're saying, that's, that's sort of that value chain, all pieces of the value chain have a, have a very dark, dark history. Um, and and I think that when people try to remix it and say, you know, we need this criminal justice system uh, to achieve its aims, you really have to wonder what were those aims? Are people sure that that uh, you know this this was created and engineered in the first place for any sort of justice or safety? It's interesting that you mention it like that because I mean, just the the issue of the forced prisons because it already at a very embryonic stage creates this intimate link between you know, uh, capitalism and the specific forms it takes here mm-hmm. in South Africa and the role of incarceration, which is no, not unique to South Africa. I think you find mm-hmm. it in many other post-colonial and settler-colonial societies, least of all the U.S. Um, mm-hmm. But it then also, I guess, implies this deep role for, you know, um, I guess prisons and the policing system, not only to defend property, but to also advance the acquisition of property for particular classes. Precisely. Um, you know, with, with those institutions having their roots, um, you know, in, in the idea that that everything about their function was about colonial conquest, but also protecting colonial conquest, and so therefore, um, you know, you do you have these these sort of rules and these delineations of precisely who can work and where and who can accumulate wealth and how they can do that, um, and and you needed to have a very sort of brute force um, that that rigidly enforced that. Um, and and uh, those the, the vestiges of that haven't left us. Um, I think you know if I'm thinking of precisely something uh, you know from from the last 24 hours, it's this idea that that Begikele reemerges after sort of days of of silence and says that they're launching Operation Show Your Receipt um, and says that they're going door to door, you know, and, and anybody who who has goods in their home that that they suspect. They may have looted. They need to show receipts. Mm. I mean, the madness of the past couple of days and that being the police response is just, yeah, (laughs) no words, really. So, and I guess, yeah, this sort of um, brings us forward in very interesting ways because in many ways, I guess, you know, policing also is linked to questions of provisioning, right? When Mm -hmm. you move from a South African police force to a South African police service, Mm-hmm. It, it does imply certain things about the police um, and, and who it protects and who it pursues. Um, and, and maybe talk to us about the post-apartheid period 
and what defines and characterizes the policing shift to a service rather than being a force and maybe the return back, I guess, to being a force yeah. again. I, I think, um, you know, and, and this was something uh, I was discussing with uh, Johnny Steinberg in, in the uh, launch of the book, that I think that, that what comes to the fore and what becomes very obvious is that, um, you know, a lot of policing is also about enforcing uh, social order. Mm. And so in this sense, in, in South Africa, it was obviously very clear during, during colonialism and apartheid that that was a very strict uh, racial hierarchy. Uh, what it became post-apartheid, um, you know, then sort of says that actually the wealthier classes and, uh, and the business and political elites are now at the top of this sort of structure and hierarchy. And so as much as you want to reform and, and restructure, um, you know, an organization that has such a deep, long history and, and origin and purpose, um, if, you're, if you're not doing that in an incredibly deliberate, um, uh, you know, slow uh, way, then I, I think that you'll, you'll have sort of small wins um, and, and in some ways cheap victories, but never really um, excavating the, the, the racist and brutal practices out of the police service but also in a way that that the policing logic um, in our country for a very long time was mm. essentially that the middle classes and the wealthy were left to their own devices mm. um, and are left to their own devices. L- let's pause and actually, you know, who's, who's policed are poor yeah, people yeah. over and over and over again. I want us to pause the uh, agenda for a second and take a spot break because that's the exact point I want us to come back to when uh, we return. This idea of the arming and the militarization of particular spaces and, of course, the policing of others. uh, And we'll continue after this. It is indeed, and uh, 23 minutes it is after 8 p.m. You tuned into our Thought Leader Thursday segment and our Thought Leader on this Thursday is Yanda Stierman, the author of Can We Be Safe? Uh, the future of policing in South Africa. And Yanda, before we went to the break, you you were talking, I guess, about um, the uh, distinctions uh, between particular spaces in South Africa, a very, very South African thing, I guess. Uh, but uh, the areas of the poor and uh, the black communities in South Africa, even though they might have maybe fewer police stations, are also s- s- probably more over-policed uh, in relation to their more affluent counterparts. But I also want to maybe hear your thoughts on the emergence of a, a seemingly, I guess, sort of neo-feudal uh, type of approach to safety and security in the suburbs. I mean... A lot of people driving around with guns in the suburbs. Mm. Um, And I guess that's probably a much starker reminder of South African inequality than maybe, uh, you know, just walking about in a township where, yeah, you'll see police from time to time, yes. uh, But um, I don't know if the sort of persistent show of force uh, Mm. is as entrenched in many of our township spaces as it is in our suburbs. Yeah, and and really that's that's the point is that you know it, it, this incredibly worrying trend of of rolling out the police um, uh, and particularly in conjunction and in tandem with uh, the military to to carry out very militarized um, you know police operations. A large part of that has to do with the theater of of signaling to um, you know your middle classes and your elites that uh, you know the state is is keeping poor people in line. It's rigidly enforcing, uh, you know, this incredibly unequal and unfair social order that we have, um, and that the, the state won't hesitate to sort of drop the hammer down on on uh, criminals in that space. Um, whereas, uh, again, those those same sort of wealthier and elite classes can almost kind of buy out of of the idea of of policing um, and the basic sort of police infrastructure that that the rest of South Africa mm. is exposed to over and over and over again. 
Um, and that's why we have you know, this huge military, uh, uh, private security sector that has almost 500,000 uh, employees and particularly security guards versus 160,000 police officers. So that, so that, that enormous mismatch and exactly what you were describing um, is the logical outcome and, and the logical outflow of, of what, um, the, the way that our, our society is structured and the police within it. Hmm. And you know, yeah, it's just, I mean, for me, it's been so unsettling the last few days uh, because in a sense, there's this contract in our society, implicitly or explicitly, mm. that Ukulumende is going to have monopoly over violence or the capacity mm-hmm. for violence. Um, and yet, in a sense, in South Africa, we haven't ever had that in the post-apartheid period. You've had pockets of, vi- of um, capacity for violence that sit mm-hmm. outside of the state and people opt out, as you rightfully say, depending on how much money they have in the society. But what we've seen in the recent moment is, in a way, the state machinery of violence, so the police in particular, taking a backseat to other groupings that have capacity for violence. It might be the CPF, it might be an ad hoc group that's come together of people who have guns. It might be private security. Uh, mm-hmm. And when I talk about private security, I'm not talking about the guys who are just driving around in polos, but even mm-hmm. bigger groupings that are about protecting, you know, industrial property, as we've seen in KZN. A mm-hmm. lot of guns, you know, a lot of um, people with the capacity of like lethal force of arms. But I don't get a sense that there's a center to which all of them account. It seems that there is this, uh, what would you call it, you know, wild, wild west type of style that happens there. Uh, Your thoughts on that and, of course, uh, I guess the treatment you give to that in the book. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the outcome of of what we're seeing, what we're seeing over the last couple of days and, um, you know, what what I write about as well is is you then have this um, outflow of of both uh, guns um, and people willing to use them. I think that's that that's also the part that that truly makes the difference is seeing how quickly um, you know uh, uh, roadblocks formed, seeing how quickly uh, residents stepped in and said, you know, I I am the long arm of the law here, um, and blocking off public roads, and that's also an outflow of of the way that uh, you know apartheid uh, spatial planning obviously has still echoes um, through all of our communities and our neighborhoods, but also the fact that that people very much see this idea that. Uh, my safety and my being safe is the most important thing that I can possibly think of. And therefore, I'm, I feel, uh, uh, particularly with the police not being there, I feel that I have the right, um, you know, to threaten violence and to, and to arm myself and, and to make sure that I'm ready to do so um, at any moment in time. And that's, that's the type of, of social fragmentation that we're dealing with uh, um, at the moment and seeing really violent um, outcomes of, that, of those tensions in communities like uh, Peter Maritzburg and Phoenix at the moment. Um, and and that, that's something that we've seen multiple times over again. Um, if you think of Brackenfell, for example, and, and uh, that school uh, recently and, and many other um, examples of that type of violence. Mm. Yeah, um, maybe just the last one, Zianda. I know you have to you have to dash off uh, to a spaces uh, discussion, and uh, we don't want to be on the wrong side of that constituency because it's not too cool. But um, just maybe on the issues that we're raising um, and the situation that it, or I guess the 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 picture that it leaves us with, um, and how that picture is made worse by the current moment. What are the possibilities of really having, uh, I guess, a policing framework in a system that is one premised on service but also two premised on the restoration 
uh, and a, a particular type of uh, uh, community protection framework because it doesn't seem at this moment that I guess you know the existence of policing in whatever shape or form is really about the protection of the community more than I guess a um, sort of extension of many of the violent forces that we see in our society. Yeah I mean I, an argument that I that I make uh, through multiple chapters in the book is is really for people to start um, to start rejecting uh, particularly the the sort of slogans of, of politicians that say, you know, I have the perfect answer to to safety and violence in this country, and, um, you know, it'll be X, Y, and Z, and the police will look this way. And truly for people to start asking politicians, what are they doing to prevent crime? Mm. Because that's the other thing. We can grow our police service. We can grow the court system. We can we can build more prisons, um, you know, until the cows come home. But the, but the idea that us being safe is, is by throwing people and feeding them into this criminal justice system is very misplaced. Mm. We really need to be asking what multiple steps are being taken to prevent crime long before it becomes a, a, an issue that divides yeah. us. Yeah. Should we be defunding the police or even funding them a lot more? I mean, we're seeing austerity showing itself up in police running from Dlamini to uh, uh, Midlands to Deep Kloof trying to quell a situation that is a very, I guess, uh, archetypical South African situation. So that's that's a really interesting question. And I, it, if you'll allow me to, I'd like to reframe it um, okay, and sure, honestly sure. start yeah. asking, you know, what are we spending 99 billion rand on in terms of the police service? Because we're not spending it on, on the accountability watchdog within the police, um, IPED, mm. that's, that's able to hold uh, police officers accountable for brutality. That's not happening. We're not spending it on detective services that can actually, um, you know, get to the to get to the heart of the um, high murder rates that are in uh, the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape, particularly. That's mushrooming. Mm. That's not happening. We're not spending it on forensic labs. Um, you know, we're constantly uh, being told about huge backlogs in processing evidence, and that processing evidence means that uh, police officers aren't able to hand over um, dockets and and evidence mm. uh, for prosecution. So, so that's the question that that I. So, what are we spending would, it on? Stamps. Like are we spending it on stamps for us certifier? What are we doing? We're, we're spending it on visible policing. A huge, huge part of Petrol. the of the um, uh, police budget is on is on visible policing. And you tell me, Petrol. you think that's working? Petrol. Because <laughs> visible <laughs> policing is that, right? <laughs> patrol cars. You know, police police officers who are meant to be out there in the community. And you, I think, you, you know, we'd all have to ask ourselves, how often do we see our, our police officers? But also, how often do they make themselves um, accessible and accountable to, to community members? Yeah. Sandra Stierman, kudos once again on a great piece of work. I encourage everybody to go out and get that book at all reputable bookstores. And uh, yeah, once again, Ngoska Kulususwam. Thank you so much, Ayabong. Awesome stuff. Sandra Stierman, the author yeah, of uh, hey, Can We Be Safe? Uh, the future of policing in South Africa. That question is such a incisive question. I mean, this one of we're spending 99 billion rand, but what are we spending it on? Um, if in that entire value chain of justice, the labs don't work, aqua forensic capability, and it was investigator, Steinhoff. Sitini.